Welcome to Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. I'm Dr. Carla O'Dell, CEO of APQC, and in this series, I get to interview some of the most interesting people in the world. And today, I'm talking to Stuart Frankel. Stuart is the CEO and co-founder of Narrative Science, which is a leader in advanced natural language generation for the enterprise. So prior to Narrative Science, Stuart was president of the Performance Division of DoubleClick and was a member of DoubleClick's senior management team when the company was sold to Google in 2008. Sweet, Stuart. Stuart was recognized as a finalist for E&Y's Inter-Entrepreneur of the Year in 2015 and named a Crane Chicago Business 2015 Tech 50 list. Welcome, Stuart. Well, thank you. It's great to, it's great to be here, Carla. Great to meet you. All right. So, Stuart, let's start where most people are. Would you describe for our listeners what do you mean by natural language generation and data storytelling, and why are they important? So, natural language generation is um, very much how it sounds. Um, it's the output is is language. Um, the input is 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 data. Um, natural language generation has actually been around for a long time. It's been around since the since the 70s, and really the early use cases were taking weather data and then taking that data and 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 transforming it into snippets of natural language to have little mini weather reports and. Um, the Weather Service was probably one of the first organizations to adopt natural language generation. And so it's been around for a while. Uh, over the last few years, it has had a um, significant resurgence and, you know, I would say a significant step up in terms of the complexity of the technologies that are involved now with natural language generation and the type of the type of output. Um, in fact, we uh, have put the word advanced before natural language generation when we describe um, what we do at Narrative Science because, um, in essence, um, the, the technology has moved and the concepts have moved from little snippets of text and just taking data and turning that into language at, to a point where it is now a technology that can actually look at data, figure out what's interesting and important in that data, and then take that analysis and actually render that into a natural language document. And a natural language document could be anything like a snippet of text like I, I described, or it could be a 20-page investment research report that looks and sounds like a uh, Wall Street equity analyst took a look at a stock, conducted research, and wrote up uh, and wrote up a report. So significantly advanced from kind of where it, uh, it was in the uh, in the early days, and and obviously lots of lots of application to it. In terms of data storytelling, which was another part of your uh, which was another part of your question, um, data storytelling is, has gotten hot. If you um, look at what business intelligence um, companies and technologies are are talking about. Um, they talk about finding the story in your data and telling the story with your with your data. And so there's no question that there's this acknowledgement that data as data uh, is not very helpful, that it's um, the story that's buried in that data. What is that data telling me that I can actually uh, act upon um, and and make decisions against? And that, I think, gets to the heart of data storytelling. Uh, you know, the reason our advanced working group was so interested in it, Stuart, was exactly that point, which was because the, uh, you know, in, knowledge is information in action. And if you can't see the pattern, human beings are fabulous pattern recognition machines, 
but it also sounds like advanced narrative science can be pretty good at advanced pattern recognition and then turning that into complete sentences for people. Is that, am I, have I got a feel for what you're saying? You, yeah, you are. I mean, I think you're, I think you're on it. Um, I would, I would differ a little bit in that I think certainly when you're dealing with lots of data, particularly structured data, machines are actually a lot better at people at recognizing patterns and, and trends and, um, you know, detecting, detecting changes, just the processing power that you need and the speed that you, um, you'll often need in order to analyze large amounts of data. I think, in fact, machines do a lot better job of that than, than, than humans. I, I buy that. What about the whole question of insight, though? I mean, you mentioned earlier, like, you're drawing out what's important in the data. Is it just, not just, I mean, it's pretty impressive that the, the uh, narrative science could say this is a trend that, that uh, is there, here's a pattern, here's a correlation that, you know, you maybe should pay attention to. Um, yeah. Is that insight? I mean, that is something you think human beings tend to be pretty good at. Well, I think um, I think it is insight actually, and I think that humans can get good at that once the analysis has been done for them, and they can look at things and sort of determine, you know, what that data is saying. Although uh, I would again argue that most people are not great at that; that it is does require a certain skill, and it requires a certain level of experience to be to be good at that. Um, and I'll give you I'll just give you one quick example um, that I that I always use. Um, you think about a a company's um, earnings, quarterly earnings, right? If you're a publicly traded uh, company, everybody lives and dies by the company's quarterly, quarterly earnings. And so if you're analyzing a company and you're looking at quarterly earnings, and let's just say that the earnings have gone up you know, each quarter for the last several quarters, the headline that a person might write is, um, you know, uh, companies X, company X's earnings have, have gone up for eight consecutive quarters. And that makes you feel really, really good. And the reason that you would create that headline or the reason that you would label something like that is you're looking at a chart, right? That's sort of what we look at now when we're analyzing data. That has become the default front end on data, charts and graphs and, and other visualizations. But what's really interesting, unless there are some really um, kind of details in these, in, these, in these charts that typically are not there, what's really important is, are those, is that company's uh, earnings um, accelerating or decelerating, right? That's really important. What is, the, what is the real underlying trend there? And I'll tell you, in many cases, unless that trend is very dramatic, it's impossible for people to see. But our technology, Quill, would see that, and it would know that that's pretty important. When you're analyzing a stock, the earnings growth is fine, but you really want to know what is that company going to do in the future? Are those earnings going up, or are they contracting potentially, or at least at least going down? And I think people would miss that, and often miss that, but you know, technologies like ours would highlight that, bring that to the surface, and importantly communicate that in a way that people can understand. You can kind of hit people over the head with something, with something like that. Give, I, that was a really good example. Give me some other examples, Stuart, of how companies and your customers are, are using this. So Quill is a horizontal platform, and it can be applied really to you know, just about any vertical. It's completely domain agnostic. As long as the system has data 
that is made available to it, um, it can be configured to uh, you know, generate general natural language um, natural language reports. Having said that, uh, a lot of our uh, efforts have been uh, toward large financial services uh, organizations over the last couple of years, and then other large enterprises outside of financial services like retail organizations, uh, manufacturing, healthcare uh, industries, industries like that. And there are really three broad categories that people look at when they're looking to apply um, Quill to their business operations. The first is operational efficiency. The second is improving customer engagement. And the third is regulatory and compliance. So three really big buckets of, of activities. And let me just give you kind of a quick example under each one so that uh, you understand really what, what I'm talking about. You know, operational efficiency is very, um, is very buzzy. It's almost a cliche. Everybody talks about improving operational efficiency, whether that's through technology or some type of, of, of process improvement. Um, the, if you think about the way that the world has gone over the last you know, call it 10 years or so, um, we've really invested pretty heavily in, in data. Uh, as a society, certainly large enterprises have invested real dollars in their data infrastructure and uh, beyond their core data infrastructure in terms of capturing data and storing data. Things like business intelligence tools, advanced analytics tools, visualization, dashboards, we've bought a whole lot of stuff. And over time, we've moved all that stuff from the uh, um, kind of you know, the part of the organization that was mostly IT-focused or analytics-focused, and now moving that really to business users across entire organizations. I think there's this theory out there that everybody is going to become data literate and everybody is going to become proficient with, with data. Um, I think that that's uh, ridiculous in many ways. I'm not sure we want everybody uh, uh, data literate, um, but nonetheless, this has um, been the trend in, in recent years. And so you've got now a lot of people, a lot of knowledge workers within organizations who not only have their day job, but they're now exposed to all of this data and this whole tool set that they have to learn to access that data and analyze that data. And what are they doing with it? They're ultimately generating some type of report. Most people in organizations are not tasked with finding the needle in the haystack in large amounts of data. What they're tasked with is running a sales force, getting a product to market. And they have a boss, and their boss says, hey, how are sales doing this month or this week? Or um, you know, give me a report on our top 20 salespeople. And so they're looking at this data and uh, he or she is taking that data and writing up a report. And you start to think about that activity going from spreadsheet or BI application to some type of written report. You look at that activity across every organization, every department within every organization, and it all of a sudden starts to be a really big number in terms of time being spent, in terms of dollars being spent. And that's only getting... Uh, bigger. So in my mind, that problem is only getting worse because as more and more data becomes available, we give more and more data to more people within an organization. Quill can actually step in and, and help with that. So Quill can write that weekly sales report or 
Quill can give that update on um, you know product performance with respect to, to to sales and other data that you would be interested in. And so we uh, firmly believe, and we're seeing this you know play out, that one of the real benefits and byproducts of of Quill is that we give employees time back. We can actually automate a lot of the tasks that they're doing with respect to taking data and writing up reports, automate that to give them some time back so that they can focus on higher value activities. You know, that makes a great point. Somebody was telling me the other day that it isn't just the uh, everybody's going to be an analyst problem. You know, these reports are enormously time-consuming right now, but the with the shortage of real uh, data analysts, I mean the high-level folks, we can't afford to have them be spent running repetitive reports for these departments, which is what happens now. Once they show people that it's, they can get a report, they want it, and they don't want to run it. So it sounds like this could, this could also free up those very high-level uh, analysts as well as the uh, thousands of uh, the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, look, it's a great, it's a, it's a great point. Um, the path that we're going down, I just don't believe will, will, will work. Um, you know, the, 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 the demographics aren't with us in terms of, you know, people graduating from, you know, um, from schools and with the, getting the right experience and things are moving very, very quickly. You know, we all know now that data is growing exponentially. You know, it's essentially doubling every year. And as we now, look to things like connected devices and industrial sensors and overall the Internet of Things, the amount of data is pretty overwhelming um, that organizations and you know, ultimately people are tasked with um, understanding and, uh, and gleaning insight from that, from that data. So there's no question in my mind that you know, software and machines are going to have to step in and help here. And again, Quill is one of those, but we think you know, a, a certainly a very applicable one here. So I, so I started by saying that there are really three big um, you know, categories of, of uses of Quill within organizations. The, the operational efficiency bucket is the first one that I went through. The second one, customer engagement. Uh, you know, there's no question that uh, all companies within all industries, frankly, want to have better relationships with their customers, um, tighter relationships with their customers to improve those relationships to the point where people are buying more or certainly not buying less and, and continue to be engaged with those, with those organizations. And certainly um, transactional organizations, um, you know, whether it's your credit card issuer, whether it's your wealth advisor, whether it's an online brokerage, any number of other organizations as a consumer that you interact with, those organizations have essentially done to consumers what those organizations have done to their own employees. They've made a lot of data available. Every company has some proprietary login now reporting interface that consumers have access to, and they can log in and they get information on their account. So if you're a customer of uh, an online, you know, um, wealth firm, uh, whether it's a discount broker or even um, some, you know, an organization with, with more full service, you're given access to this portal and you log in and you get information on your account. And so what you get, if you're the tip, a typical individual investor, you get a table of your investment holdings, you get a pie chart that shows you the allocation of those holdings across equities and bonds and cash and so forth. You get a list of indices 
that your investment results are compared to um, that are incomprehensible, even for sophisticated people, and then you essentially get wished the best of luck. Go figure out what this all means. And by the way, if you want to dig down and analyze all of the data underneath that reporting, that basic reporting, that's all available to you. Uh, the market has spoken. Those tools are underutilized. The information that's being presented to investors is um, not very helpful. And large you know, wealth advisory firms and you know, other financial services firms, they recognize this. Uh, they, need to, they need to keep those customers and they need to do more. And so we're starting to work with organizations to apply Quill to customer communication. So that example that I gave you of a customer logging in to their investment account, um, uh, we are now providing those types of customers at some organizations with a natural language report, essentially, that explains to them in plain English how their investment portfolio is performing, how they're doing against um, uh, you know, prior periods, against goals that they've established, and importantly, what are things that they might want to consider doing in terms of managing their portfolio to, um, to increase the likelihood that they're going to reach their, their, their goals. And so what you've got is you've got this very personalized communication. Even though a machine is creating it, it's personal. It's essentially a report for an audience of one, and it creates that uh, touch point and that connection between a very large organization who couldn't do this with people and their end and their end customers. That is a and then the third. Oh, go ahead. Keep going. I was just going to say I was well, very I, excited by that example. I think everybody can relate <laughs> to that one. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that, and I, I, I agree. I think it's a good one because I think it checks a lot of boxes in terms of um, understanding, you know, how this technology could be used in the marketplace. And then the third category really is in the area of regulatory compliance, particularly financial services firms. As you know, the, the amount of, of laws and, and, and regulations that – um, that, uh, that they are subject to is doing nothing but increase, certainly since the financial crisis of 2008. And it's overwhelming these organizations, even large organizations. I recently read that J.P. Morgan Chase, for example, has 9,000 employees, 9,000 full-time employees focused on helping J.P. Morgan Chase comply with anti-money laundering laws and regulations. That's an extraordinary that's an extraordinary number. And so we're starting to apply our technology in the area of regulatory compliance as well um, so that organizations can make sure that they're complying in a timely way with these various laws and regulations, that they're generating the reporting that they need for these regulatory bodies, and ultimately reducing risk and exposure because um, they're not relying on an army of people um, to to generate this type of reporting. You know, Stuart, you bring up a fabulous point. A lot of the people in the area of content management and knowledge management inside enterprises have huge staff, some of them in India, uh, whose job it is is to sort through these volumes of content that the organization is creating every day and package and curate it in such a way that the good stuff rises to the top, that the um, that it gets summarized for people and that it's very personalized, you know, just in time, just enough, just for me, right. uh, for right. a person in their job. 
could could Quill or the whole field of narrative science help 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 with that? Well, you know, um, our technology relies on um, structured data. So there are, um, you know, essentially data, you know, numbers and unambiguous um, symbolic text, of which there's a ton of it. There are also existing documents out there, and there are technologies that are, you know, being developed that can extract information from those documents and, um, you know, essentially um, figure out what the document is talking about. And the way that they do that is they, they structure um, they structure that data. Um, so that data winds up in a relational database, and then somebody has to do something with that. And so to the, your, your, your question can, you know, is there a technology out there that can summarize and, and, and bubble up um, the most important documents? There are certainly some technologies that are uh, taking a whack at that, a whack at that problem. But I think importantly, what those technologies do is just create more data that ultimately has to be analyzed and um, expressed in some way. And so that's just more data that Quill will have access to. And Quill can, you know, use that and apply that um, uh, that data to its, uh, or use that data rather for its for its output. So not, not directly in terms of what you ask, but certainly there's an indirect um, uh, involvement there. So if somebody else in the ecosystem, some other technology, structures that unstructured data, then Quill can have at it. And You got it. Yeah. Well, as long as we brought up the ecosystem, where do you see narrative science in, in this whole ecosystem of cognitive computing, machine learning, AI, and where do you see that field going? Well, it's amazing, isn't it, what's going on? Um, you know, certainly in the last five years or so, the field has really exploded. Interestingly, when we started the company in 2010, even though I co-founded the company with two uh, computer science professors who are experts in AI and have been involved in AI for you know, over 30 years, um, we were very cautious about how we labeled um, the company and how we labeled our, our technology because AI was still really coming out of its very long, you know, very long winter. Um, you know, that has changed clearly, and there is just an enormous amount of work, and there's an enormous amount of investment being done in in all of these areas. I think it's really complex for people to understand. Uh, many of these technologies are very nascent. Um, many of these technologies, I think, are still looking for uh, product market fit, if you will, trying to really figure out, you know, what are the best places to apply these these technologies. There is a commonality, though. Um, the reason that there's been this explosion in these technologies is the explosion in data, um, and you can really measure that. So, you know, things like machine learning, um, those concepts have been around for a long time, but in terms of the data that you can make now available to systems, the, the, the processing power and memory and speed that is now available, you know, through hardware is, uh, is really extraordinary. And so it enables these things. And so data underpins really all of these new, um, new technologies. Um, and again, while they're new technologies, many of them, uh, are based on, you know, concepts that have been around for, uh, for a while. That commonality, uh, in many cases, will drive the need for some type of reporting. So I mentioned things like 
sensor data. Uh, you look at what's going on in large industries and, uh, you know, manufacturers and uh, operators are um, putting sensors on every piece of meaningful equipment in a factory, in the field, on the road. And they now are collecting just an enormous amount of data. They'll use machine learning and other tactics to you know, analyze that data and hopefully bubble up trends. And so you look at um, you know, all of the data that is now being generated through through sensors. Uh, large in industrial manufacturers and you know, other companies are starting to tag and sensor every piece of you know, meaningful equipment, whether it's in the factory, whether it's in the field, whether it's on the road. And and this is generating an enormous amount of of data. And so. Certain of these technologies that we just talked about, like machine learning, um, will be used to analyze that data and try to um, use that data in a meaningful way. But in the end, that last piece is always about communication. Sometimes it's machine-to-machine -machine communication, but I wouldn't necessarily discount the need for people to analyze that data uh, in a way that they can um, make decisions against. And I think that analysis is going to come through um, uh, automation, and I think it's going to come through, in many cases, getting a report that tells them just the information they need at the time they need it and creates an action item for them to make a decision against. Stuart, do you ever get uh, people expressing concerns about how far this could go and what it might mean for how we work in the future? We do. Um, when we started, we got a lot of concerns because, you know, I think anything new, particularly when any, any new technology, particularly when it does something that we um, normally equate to what a human would do. So it's writing, essentially, and that's what people do. Um, but now we have machines that do that. I think that's a very scary concept for almost anybody. And so there's no question when we started there was concern that the work that we were doing was designed essentially to put people out of work. And I always got a, a chuckle. That's a, that was such a di diabolical analysis of what we were, of what we were doing. Um, and I think over time, people now have understood in a much deeper way what we're doing, but are still concerned that maybe a byproduct of what we're doing could potentially displace people. And, you know, my answer to that concern typically is around both history and, I think, um, kind of practicality. So, you know, history has, has told us that, you know, technology, uh, particularly transformational technologies, cause dislocations in the workforce. There's just absolutely no question. Jobs go away but new jobs appear. And um, there's not been a time in history really where that hasn't happened, but there also hasn't been a time where over time technology has become a net uh, uh, job creator. So new jobs have outpaced over you know, a reasonable period of time the loss of certain jobs. And I think um, uh, AI and cognitive computing in general uh, will result in transformational change across every area of business and, you know, in many cases, every area of our, of our lives. And this is a, you know, certainly a 10 to 20 to, you know, 
30 or more year progression that will take place. And I do think that the nature of work in many fields is, is going to change. I think that if your job is to simply go from spreadsheet to some type of report and you can't do anything else, that job is at, is at risk. There's no question in my mind that technologies like ours will be ubiquitous and will um, kind of expand in terms of their applications, their usage, their usability. Um, but I think that there's, you know, relatively few people where that's their only their their only job. But you know, I'll be you know very candid in that I do think the changes that are coming will um, substantially change work. And well, a friend of mine, Tom Davenport, who's also on the APQC board. Tom. Yeah. But but it, it's hard to it's hard to um, think of the jobs that are going to be created. That's the harder part, but we know they will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, servicing these pieces of software is not the same as servicing a robot in a uh, manufacturing facility. So it's uh, not clear that there's any lower level jobs available. We'll find out. Tom Davenport's got a great new book with uh, Julie Klein that says I think that's it. Her his co-author. It's the title. I love it. It's Only Humans Need Apply. And yeah, uh, I saw that. Yeah, it's how to keep yourself how to keep yourself employed. Yeah. Probably must. Yeah, absolutely. Must reading. So, uh, what kind of you've been you have been in this field for a long time, Stuart? And what kind of advice or cautions could you share with us who just kind of coming into it about you know what we should pay attention to and not not worry so much about? Yeah, well, I, look, I think that these technologies are, are, are real. I think they're here to stay, but I think most of them are, are very nascent. So I do think it's very early, and I certainly wouldn't ignore any of them. I would use this time to really get up to speed on you know, the different areas of cognitive computing and how they might apply to your organization. But I would also um, caution people not to... Um, fall in love and buy technology for technology's sake. I think you always have to go back to first principles, which is what's my strategy, what are the problems that I'm trying to solve, what are the markets that I'm trying to serve, and then look at people and process and technology and see if there are things that can help you solve those problems or help you achieve your strategy. And I think in many cases, technology now can be used to do that. But until you can find that um, potential return and that close connection to what you're doing, I would just caution people that they should um, get much smarter on how these technologies work, but also how they would be used within their enterprise. Well, Stuart, on that note of wisdom, which is really helpful, I think, to people to always remember. I think we're going to probably have to stop for today and pick this conversation up in six months when things are already going to be very different. So it's about all the time we have for today. But thank you. This has been a terrific conversation. And as fast as this is moving, I think we're going to have to talk again. Well, thanks for having me. I'd love to to, uh, speak with you again. Well, I think you've raised our awareness about the art of the possible and We'll just keep being big thinkers, Stuart, together. So for those of you listening, if you'd like to learn more about APQC, please go to our website, www.apqc.org. And if you'd like to learn more about Quill and Narrative Science, please go to their website. And, Stuart, thank you so much, and thanks, everyone, for listening, and have a great day.